you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. Uh, we were here last night too. We, we, uh, and uh, towards the end, I think it's better already, but towards the end last night, it seems like people finally started to loosen up and, and let it go. But uh, we just want to. I know, I know there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's laws on the books. There's laws about things like gay marriage and things like that. Uh, right now, at least not anyway, uh, not yet, there's, uh, there's no, no, no law against losing your fucking shit at a rock and roll concert. So please take advantage. We implore you to take advantage of your freedoms. And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring... Mr. Stone Gossett! Fucking camera in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast last week we did a great show out of santiago chile from 2011 although we loved being with javier last week and having his takes and everything we'll hear back from him in this show i just want to thank everybody for chiming in and saying that they really enjoyed it too a lot of you reached out unfortunately he's not on the full entire episode today but we will do that again soon So instead, we are going to be taking a Patreon request from a good patron named Jason Weiss. If you recognize his name before, that's because he's won a setlist draft, and not just the original setlist draft, but he won setlist chaos as well. So it'd be good to read his story and get his take of the show. Very interested in that. And yeah, this show is the second night of four from 2009. And when you think of four shows, you kind of think of the spectrum. But we can get into that in a little bit. But yeah, they did four nights at Universal City, Gibson Amphitheater. And it's very interesting because the venue is very interesting. It's not up anymore. But why don't we just get into that now? We'll just kind of see what happens here and dictate where the story goes. All right. Randy Sobel over here. John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. Hiya. Yeah, I don't ever think of these really as being a four-night run. I mean, it's broken up with the Austin stuff, the Austin City Limits, and then they did two nights and then came back almost a week later and did the next two. But I don't normally think of these in that same way, but it is kind of the same thing. It is, and on top of that, I don't normally think of these shows at all, unfortunately. Yeah. 
Have we, we haven't done any of them before, right? This is the first one. Yeah, yeah. And I think the night to do would be night three, because that's the night that Jerry Cantrell came out. That's the night that Chris Cornell came out. And I mentioned the Spectrum. I think it just gets overshadowed by that show because of how important it was that it was closing down the building. And there's kind of a misconception that goes along with that. We can get into a second, but East coast people always talk their shows up a little bit more than West coast people too. you know, LA to Philadelphia, no offense to the people out in LA, but it doesn't compare as much like Philadelphia. People are loud. They're going to let you know. And it's not even just Philadelphia people. It's people from all around the world that went to go witness these shows and they are still talked about a lot to these days. And yeah, I just don't think that Universal City has that same kind of steam. But I, I think that what we do on this show sometimes is we like to kind of challenge the reputation a little bit and put these shows that don't really get talked about into the forefront because that's kind of what we do. We don't need to put the Philadelphia shows in the forefront. We like to do that because it's part of history, but they stand up on their own feet, though all four of those shows, as well as any, these four shows probably need a little bit more love and care and research into them to get it on your guys' minds. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, it needs it to get on mine too. Like you said, like I almost never think of these shows. I think the main thing I know about the show is that they used Rearview Mirror on the PJ20 soundtrack. Right. So I remember that thinking like, oh, that's noteworthy. Like that must have been a really good performance. So I was looking forward to listening to that one. But you mentioned, you know, Philadelphia and some of the other crowds like Universal City is, you know, you think it's like Hollywood kind of area. Those areas are not known for having great rock and roll crowds. It's usually more of a celebrity type thing. Like, you know, that's that's the stereotype. But this crowd, I think, did a good job of bucking up against that. And you hear Ed talk about that, too. You know, you don't normally think of like an L.A. crowd as being like a really kind of rowdy rock and roll crowd. But he gets them going early on this one. I want to get to hear sort of a misconception about these shows. And there's something that Ed says on the fourth night that have led people to believe that these shows closed down the Gibson Amphitheater. That is entirely false. So Ed's direct quote from this was, a higher up in charge of the place said that they can tear the building down on the last night. That wasn't meant to be taken literally. That was fully like, it's the last night that we're playing here out of the four. And people know that that amphitheater is not up anymore. So they kind of put the two and two together. But also going back to the spectrum, they think about what happened with the spectrum. It's got all the same cues. It's, it's four shows. And the last night had a, more of a spectacular vibe to it. So I, I get that there's a misconception there. And I just want to tell you, if you were thinking about that and have thought about that for a long time, that that's not correct. The venue is not around anymore. It closed in September of 2013, and it was not closed by Pearl Jam. Do you know why the amphitheater was, was torn down and demolished? Was it for something at like Universal Studios? It, wasn't it was like demolished to make way for the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park at Universal Studios Hollywood. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, th I think I did read that. And, and fun fact, too, this is the same amphitheater that had the 1993 
MTV Awards with right. Animal and Rocket in the Free World with Neil Young. Yep, that's right. Before we get to Jason's story, I want to throw in some tidbits from our listener, Christian Anderson, who shared on the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook. Hey, if you haven't joined on to that, then definitely get yourself on. It's a great community. Really love the fans over there. They've been just great people, and everybody brings up really good topics of discussion. So if you want to be part of that, definitely join. Now, here are some of the stats that we had from all four of these shows. So there was a total of 112 songs played, only 27 repeats. That's pretty impressive out of four shows. 65 different songs. So, again, pretty impressive. I don't remember the full number it was for the Spectrum, but it it was very high. I think it was in the 80s. Eight covers and songs from 12 different albums. I, I guess that is including like Lost Dogs and singles and yeah, yeah. and Merkin Ball and stuff like that. Okay. But that hey, thank you Christian for for bringing that to our attention cuz I wouldn't have thought to combine everything like that. But yeah, that's that's interesting. Let's get into reading from the man of the episode here, our patron Jason Weiss who got to request this one and we're going to kind of Go back and forth a little bit here on reading it. So I'll kick it off, and then John will chime back in. It'll be a little story time hour for you guys. Night two of the LA 2009 stand was my second show in spite of being a fan since 1992 and being very well-versed in the bootlegs. It was an unthinkable gap between this show and my first show, which was on October 24, 2000. Another underrated show since it lives in the shadows of the Vegas 10th anniversary show coming right before it. But no matter how great this band is on any given night, we all know that the strength of the crowd is a critical ingredient to the Pearl Jam experience and elevating a show to another level. As a transplanted New Yorker, my experiences with an L.A. crowd at concerts in general paled by comparisons to seeing shows in cities like New York, New Jersey, Philly, Boston, etc. Historically, there's been a disconnect, and it often felt like there was a ceiling on many L.A. shows. I wasn't at night one and sadly couldn't be at nights three and four as I was back east seeing Bruce close down Giant Stadium and his last Philly Spectrum show a couple weeks before Pearl Jam would close it down for good. But it was clear early on that Ed experienced this disconnect on night one. It was equally clear that he was feeling this crowd early on and made reference to it four or five times throughout the show. The venue made things feel pretty intimate and held only 6,000 people, and this was a shockingly good Los Angeles crowd. The strongest crowd experience that I've had at the time in LA. The band and crowd seemed connected early in a way that wasn't there in my first show. It felt like a true symbiotic experience between the band and energized crowd really made this a great night. It was a reminder that the set list doesn't always tell the story. I'd much rather hear deeper cuts than hits. But from that perspective, this show looks like the weakest of the four from just the set list since it really doesn't have any deep, rare songs. Perhaps Ed went with a more hits-driven set list after feeling like he needed to do so to keep the LA crowd engaged after night one. Regardless, there was electricity in the building on night two that would fuel this show from the beginning. This show is one that understandably is overlooked given the strength of Nights 3 and 4, the former which featured Chris Cornell coming out to play Hunger Strike, which I still can't believe I missed, not to mention Philly Spectrum shows at the end of the month. He goes on to say, The band came out strong with Interstellar Overdrive into Corduroy, which set the tone, and strong versions of Severed Hand and Do the Evolution were early set highlights. 
As much as I felt they could have balanced out the heavy selection of hits with some more rare songs, I have to say that they all worked extremely well and were among some of the more powerful moments of the show, and the crowd ate them up. Other highlights for me were a short but powerful version of I Got Shit, as well as a great cover of Driven to Tears, which hadn't been played in 158 shows. I remember being really happy to get once in the second encore and feeling like it was, as always, a great ramp up to a live, but in listening back, I realized I may have remembered it more fondly than perhaps it deserves, as there is something off about this version. It sounds like they played it in a lower key and it just falls flat. But Salvation would come immediately when they launched into a live, which was the pinnacle of the night, which is where the connection between the band and audience really came to a crescendo, and the place was absolutely on fire. Ed was running all over the stage and feeling the energy of the crowd, and Mike Solo was smoking. It seemed like Ed didn't want the song to end. Alive was incendiary and felt like a monster of an anthem. It was a massive song played in a relatively small room, and it simply blew the fucking roof off the building. I'll never forget this one. Having said that, I'm not sure if I've ever gotten over learning the next day that that Footsteps was on the set list before once and skipped, and how close I came to getting the reverse Mamas on. Thankfully, I have since redeemed this at the San Diego show in 2022. It's entirely possible that this could be the weakest setlist of the shows I've seen, but it doesn't matter. What made this such a great night was the connection between the crowd and the band. While my first show felt like a great concert, this show transcended that because it was a great communal experience between the band and the crowd that was indelible. If I'm grading this objectively, I'd say this is a solid 8 without any deductions being for a straightforward set list, and that it lacked the big moment that the other nights had, like Hunger Strike on night 3, sandwiched in the middle of a misordered Mamasan and Crown of Thorns and Alone on night 4. But if I'm letting emotion get the best of me, I might add another half point for the special intangible energy that gave me my first in-person experience of feeling so connected with the band that infuses us with that insatiable need to obsessively keep coming back to see the band as many times as possible and travel to different cities to do so. This was the show where it got into my blood and I would never be the same. Thank you, Randy and John, for covering the show for me. Hopefully it translates on the bootleg. Well... Thank you, Jason. Awesome yeah, stuff. Great job. And I remember from your Forever Faithful submission, you actually chose a live, and I was hoping that you would get into a live here and, and talk about it a little more. So good that we got a little bit of what your reaction was there. Because, yeah, a live is a very good moment. We'll get to that when we get to that. But, all right, let's answer the question of the week this week pretty simple this is 2009 the backspacer era so i kept it pretty simple here we just asked what backspacer song would you like to see in 2023 and why that's it some people gave us just song name answers and some people went more in depth i'll start with one or two on twitter danny t said i sound like a broken record but speed of sound it's just so damn good perfect song for the number three spot i like that idea you like that yeah, live, I think it, it works better. I like the demo version on the record. It's not the best performance of it. I agree with that. I like the demo version a lot more. And I think if Ed just did it solo, maybe it would sound a little bit more like that. But it's not a bad option for the third spot if they're going to keep doing that five song sit down yeah, in yeah. the beginning. Yeah. Hasn't been played since 2016. Well, you never know with these songs. They bring it out sometimes, they like it, they keep going with it. So maybe it's the year for Speed of Sound, who knows? 
Another one I'll do here is from Jeff. He is one of our patrons from France. He says, Amongst the Waves is getting harder and harder for Ed to sing. I agree with that. There was a show, I believe it was in Berlin last year, where he just had a really, really difficult time getting through it. So I, I, I agree with that. John, what do you got from Facebook? I got a lot of people that had one song that they wanted to hear, and that is Gonna See My Friend. Yeah. Above and beyond the number one choice for a lot of people. David James says, it's a blistering rock song. Be great early on in the set or later. Joel Egger says, I'd love to see Gonna See My Friend this year. It's a song that has a deep personal meaning to me from my time in active addiction to the overwhelmingly important practice of staying close to positive friends and mentor that have saved my life. Dakota Duvall says, definitely going to see my friend. Under three-minute energetic song that can keep the momentum building early to the mid-set. And then he says, also has to come back for the shirt design, which is the live on four leg shirt for the tour, which would be a nice, nice touch. I don't um, think we've actually told like the public that. We've told our yeah. friends. But yeah, it is going to be around that catchphrase. So very, very soon you'll know more. Very, very, very soon you'll know more. So hang on to that thought. Moira Hook says, Gonna see my friend deserves an airing during the 2023 tour. Rob Horace says, two votes for me. Gonna see my friend. Personally connect with my childhood friend around Pearl Jam. So this tour, I'm quote unquote, gonna see my friend. Yeah, I think that's what five or six people chose. Gonna see my friend. That's definitely the one. Yeah. Hasn't been played since 2016 also, so... They only did three Backspacer songs last year, so... Yeah, it probably added up to about, like, six altogether. Yeah. Like, really, really low. It's interesting that everybody says that about Gonna See My Friend, because it's in the set list for this show, and we'll end up talking about it. And I can see where people are going to want to rally behind it, because this version would make you think that you would want to. So hang on to that thought until the second encore. That's a lot, like a couple people with Unthought Known and Speed of Sound a little bit, but Supersonic got one. This was from Tasker. He said, simply put, it just sounds like they're having fun, and the lyric, I want to live my life with the volume full, is an amazing way to approach life. Love it. I bring up Supersonic specifically because I'm on that team. Does it have anything to do with the song? No. (laughs) <laughs> it's just a collector thing. So Yeah, I've I've heard it and yeah. We hope you enjoy it. Yeah, right. It's not gonna matter afterwards, but from a hey, what kind of song do I want to see? I think Speed of Sound and Gonna See My Friend are are pretty high up there. So all right. Great answers, everybody, this week, as always. And now we can get into a backspacer show. We're gonna kick things off going to be that intro interstellar overdrive coming in the corduroy they need to start out hot because the last crowd wasn't that fulfilling so this is probably as big as you can get
Interstellar Overdrive felt really loose and playful. It felt like they knew, like, okay, we gotta, we gotta come out and be crowd friendly tonight. They always know when they need to get a crowd on their side, especially if you're looking at night two. So, yeah, coming out with Interstellar Overdrive in the corduroy, you're gonna get everyone going immediately. I agree with the intro there. It just felt like it was just a really good jam, like a good injection of energy got you excited for corduroy, but also. They could have extended that for another couple minutes, and I think it would have still captivated this crowd. Like, think about Mike going off on another huge solo or something like that. Like, that was a really fun part, and then Corduroy takes it away, and you kind of know that you're in a good Corduroy, and they're feeling it from the first song when Ed starts screaming out, yeah, yeah, like right in the bridge, right before the ride, taking you to the end with the solo and the big drive and everything like that yeah they were feeling it on the first song and they would bottle up a little bit of energy as as it went on here it felt like it had a purpose like they came out with like a mission like we're gonna we're gonna get this crap behind us and get this thing going yeah i'm on board with that severed hand got some follow up got some's gonna be the first of eight backspacer songs on this night which shouldn't surprise anybody except for the people that might be used to three gigaton songs being played every night Well, that didn't always happen. But yeah, very standard affair for both songs. It hit that median average where you kind of expect those songs to be. They hit you in the right way. They're good energetic and they're in, they're out. And onto a section that's going to follow with older songs that kind of the older 10 Club crowd are going to attach to. Yeah, I thought Severed Hand was the best. It starts out thinking, okay, like we're not going too far back, just an avocado song here to kick the fast section off. But I thought the solo was really good, and the whole ending was great. It was Stone and Matt, I thought, really elevated that performance. It ended up being really good and really impressive. All right, Ed's addressing for the first time after three songs. Cheers. We were here last night, too. Towards the end last night, it seemed like people were starting to loosen up and let it go. I know there's a lot of laws on the books, things like gay marriage. Hey, well, that's not a law anymore. But right now, there's no law against losing your shit at a rock and roll concert. We implore you to take advantage of your freedoms. So this is him very early on just saying, guys, last night, didn't really approve of that. So we're busting our ass out here. We expect you guys to kind of bust your ass too. And it feels like the crowd's like, yeah, sure. What else do we got to do? Yeah, of course. So the next three, as I kind of said, there were more 90 songs that are happening three in a row here. Do the Evolution, Dissident, Given a Fly. The only note I have on Evolution is just the change line to I'm the first man and Laker fan. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah, it felt like he got mixed up on the lyrics early on and maybe missed one early. But, you know, I didn't catch the Laker fan thing. That's funny. Stone has a couple of really good solos. The second one, I think, is much better than the first one, a lot more melodic. But again, you're going back after getting severed hand and got some, you're going yield versus yield. So yield is the one that they usually go to when they need to get a crowd on their side. So not surprising that that shows up here. This had a cool lyric change at the end for that, too. I know he's changed it before. Escape is never the safest plan, but it's convenient or something like that. There have Mm -hmm. been other versions. 
that was a nice little ad there. I feel like I'm going to say something very John Madden right now, and that is, yeah, the songs are the songs. You know, let the songs be the songs. Let them sound how they're supposed to sound, and they sound really good, and boom, you have a great football game. You have a great concert. Like, this is all I got for this section here. Evolution, heavy driving song, sounded great. Dissident, it's the kind, has a blistering, soaring guitar song. That's great. Given a fly, gives you an exhilarating moment to sing along with. They all worked well together. They all did what they were supposed to do. It works. I'll be the, uh, what was the guy's name? Pat Summerall. Yeah, I'll be the Pat Summerall and be like, ha ha, yep. Yeah, you are Pat Summerall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, Madden is going X's and O's in all places and drawing you know, marker and stuff like that. John's sitting there and saying, the extra point is good. That's all you need. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Ed introduces Peter from England. I believe he's a longtime tech of theirs. If I'm not mistaken, I don't know if it was this summer or another tour summer recently i want to say it was in europe though where he had a happy birthday moment that's that's where i remember Hmm. his name from so and then i guess he's just fixing something on stage and ed says that's a knot he learned from newcastle so now we are at the point of the set if you guys remember what happened last week there was a little bit of a torching here olay brought to the table did not come out alive and after that it kind of got a little contentious in a way but i wouldn't even say contentious people had their full opinions on it and everybody was willing to share and i think there was a lot of constructive conversation over it but i guess i just wasn't expecting there to be all of this Olay favoritism did you i because i i just had no yeah. I, I thought everybody agreed yeah, I think whenever you use kind of superlatives like that, whenever you call something the worst or the best, especially the worst, though, because that's going to get people like, yeah. well, no, you you know, I think this one's the worst, you know, because we, if we had said like, Ole is probably one of their worst songs, then it might not have been as contentious, but we did call it the worst Pearl Jam song. So that's fair. And we don't do that. We don't do like hot, hot take city on the show at all because yeah. we're maybe to you guys were more fair and balanced. I like to think and like to try to be fair and balanced with everything and just kind of take it for what it is and what we hear. But people got after us a little bit and that's okay. But you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of talk about Olay in comparison to Johnny guitar and it's going to have a little bit of what we thought last week mixed in and with some understanding here. So just hear me out on this. Johnny guitar by many is not considered to be one of their highly sought after songs. I can't consider myself a fan of it. However, I want to say it's a notch above Olay just because Olay to me, and yeah, another hot take, I guess, but it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, is the lowest that you can get. But the reason why both of these songs kind of find themselves in this placement is because we're so used to this band writing songs that have deeper meanings, metaphors, topics that strike directly at your heart. There's an extremely high bar of expectation. I believe we even mentioned that last week. So when Backspacer came out, it was considered a back to basics record. And for the most part, I think it hit that. And I know there are a ton of people out there where their favorite record is Backspacer. And I get that. And I kind of understand where everybody's coming from with that. 
it's not mine, but I don't think that matters right now. That record has a few songs on it that don't really delve into that high expectation standard that was set very, very early on in their career. And Johnny Guitar is probably the best example of that. But for all of its faults, here's why Johnny is not Olay. Johnny comes to the table with a cohesive story that it's not obnoxious to listen to the song. Like, it's not a good song, but you can sit there and be like, my ears aren't burning. And I think we discussed that about Olay. Like, that's why we really didn't like the song. It was just terribly produced and mismanaged and, and on and on and on before more people get mad at us. And, and like the story that comes with Johnny Guitar, you can kind of easily put the dots together. Ed falls in love with a girl on a poster that's clearly being wooed by Johnny Guitar Watson. And it's very simplistic. It gets you from point A to point B. And you at least understand what's going on in the song. The music probably fits to what the lyrics are. And that's okay. It's, it's simplistic. And that's okay for what it is. Can't say it's one of my favorites. It's probably not one of your favorites, John. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I'm pretty confident on saying that. Olay, on the other hand, doesn't have that connection where you remember what story it is. Because at least from this point of view, I've just wanted to turn the song off right from the moment that Ed starts singing. I have to bring this up to attention, though, because Aurelian got in touch last week, and he's pro-Olay. And he brought it to our attention that he thinks the song is about bullfighting from a bull's point of view. And unfortunately, that, that's a cool thought. And when you think of the lyrics that you do understand, like it does make a little bit of sense. But because the song was so off-putting, you just didn't even consider that at all. You just kind of wanted to yeah, be I, done with the song. Yeah, I just don't care. Yeah. But at least for Johnny Guitar and all of its faults, you can go back and say Johnny Guitar is at least a cohesive song. Is it a great song? No, I don't think so. Other people really, really like it, might hold it to a very, very high standard. And that's cool because we all have songs like that. But it's not in that same category as Olay and what makes Olay as to what we said being the worst song. Let me try to get into this a little bit here. So I'll stand by Olay being the worst Pearl Jam song. And I think Johnny Guitar is the second worst Pearl Jam song for a similar reason in that they both feel inauthentic. We talked about Olay being kind of pandering to the South American crowd and like it was probably written spur of the moment and premiered on the website before that tour to be like, here, we wrote this song for you. Don't you love it? It's like, eh, don't do that. Like, be authentic to yourself. Stick with what you know. Or, like, if you're going to evolve, then evolve. But don't pander to a crowd. Like, that makes you come off as desperate, and people can see right through that. And we, you know, Javier talked about that. And I think Johnny Guitar comes off as a little inauthentic as well because it deals in, like, innuendo and things like that that we're not used to hearing from Pearl Jam songs in this way and it's Ed doing a very different kind of vocal delivery on it that we are not used to hearing it really sticks out on that record I think as being a really kind of off-putting song you're like wait what is he doing here like yeah you're telling the story but it doesn't feel 
authentic to me. And it feels like they're doing something that they know isn't really going to translate. Like, how is this going to work? I just don't think it's a very well-written song. And I'm not going to trash this performance completely. I'm going to get into that in just a second. But yeah, Olay and Johnny Guitar, I think, are well below anything else in the catalog for that reason. That said, for the people who appreciate this song, this performance of it, I thought was okay. It gets to a part in the middle and Stone's playing a heavier rhythm on it, like trying to make it a little more substantial, I thought, because I think one of my problems with Backspacers is just all trouble. There's no heart to it. Like, there's no heaviness to it. There's no, like, weight. I mean, you know, you, you have your moment and just breathe. You have Amongst the Waves and Unthought Known, and those are kind of the three that stick around. But overall, it's very superficial and pop rock. Um, and some people are into that, which is fine. So I thought this performance, when that came on, I was like, okay, like maybe they're trying something with this and they're trying to make it work in a way that is different from the studio version. And then that rhythm stopped and went away and it went back to being what it was. we both talked for a long time about this song and obviously being played in this era it wouldn't happen much more but yeah i don't have much to say about the performance i kind of thought that ed's voice was getting a little too over raspy in it felt like he was trying really really hard to perform this i suppose and you find out like a couple songs later that he's like oh you know i hurt my voice i think it's right before the next song amongst the waves and that makes some sense but i didn't see anything in it i think that covers as much as we possibly could and the next time that we do cover johnny guitar it'll be much less but i feel like we kind of needed to follow up with olay since this was right in our laps for this episode so bring it to the table again guys another week and just build more conversation i suppose it's the most we've gotten in a very very long time so i guess we got another one all right ed's a little confused here the crowd is saying boom of course but ed thinks everybody is booing him and he says what did i say fuck you oh yeah that's boom gasper on the keyboard And that kind of ties in pretty well because speaking of Boom and the Hawaiian Islands, the water out here on the coast feels like Hawaii. If anybody's not getting in the water every day right now, it's unbelievable. Healing brings back memories from being a kid. My voice is starting to go a little bit. This is a new song, so if you know it, help sing along a little bit. This song isn't about surfing, it's about love. There's a little section amongst the waves. I got shit and then daughter. We're going to get to Javier in just a second about amongst the waves. I'll kind of tee that up. I thought Stone was excellent. And I think that this is definitely Stone's highlight of that record. He doesn't have a lot of songs that he wrote. There's only 11 songs on the album and Ed wrote most of them, like five or six of them at least, maybe more. And this was really the one that he brought to the table. And what I love about this the most is that he puts an identity to it. He takes 
the identity from what the song and what the transcript of the song is and turns it into a full-fledged like you're sitting out on the ocean and enjoying a beautiful day just riding the waves and just letting everything hit you it really has that motion vibe to it where those chords are just have that very warmth feeling and kind of just takes you if you're out in the middle of the ocean you can just kind of ride to the shore and that's the way that this song kind of feels i'm not a surfer never tried it but if i were to be surfing on a nice day and getting some good waves i'd probably be thinking about this song because of the vibe that it brings and that's all stone this is kind of the classic stone song right it, it has that really good build into the really soaring chorus that it gets to and then the build at the end is really good and it leads to that solo which might just destroys here yeah it's maybe the most classic stone song on the last few records Javier is going to join us right now and talk about this song and just kind of why it's different from the rest of the songs from the record. There's a lot of detail in it, so why don't we toss it over to him? He'll explain his thing, he's the best at it, and we'll move on. Hello, John. Hey, everyone on the podcast. We are covering Universal City this week from 2009, the Backspacer Tour. I think the first comment that I have about this one is it was pretty obvious that the band really wanted to cover how faithful the sound is on this tour compared to the record. What I'm trying to say with that is just the equipment selected and even the EQ selected for their tour is pretty similar to their live take over backspace or so that's kind of like a new concept for them around this time because they were always trying to sound a little different live to what they were doing on their records for amongst the waves it's a very underrated song i think it makes you feel that you are kind of like riding the surfboard like waiting for that wave to be caught it's a pretty good build-up, especially coming from Stone, playing that strat over the second fret with that cable, just to get that super jangly tone. Mike is doing little stuff in the back. Also, like the majority of the times, they're gonna be using that combo from Stone using that strat and Mike using something with P90s. It's gonna give a little bit more transparency to the song. It's gonna give it a little bit more jangly tone to it. They don't use a lot of pedals here, Although the concept of this tour, it was to try to push the amps as much as you can, just to try to get their natural overdrive. And maybe sometimes that's why they sound a little flat over the bootleg recording, if you have noticed that. Thank you very much, Javier. We're coming back to you for two more things in this show. So can't wait to hear more what you're going to talk about. I think we're doing Red Mosquito a little bit later, and then we'll do the national anthem, believe it or not. So hang on to that thought. All right, I got shit and daughter following up. I think daughter had a little bit of fun at the end and really kind of showed what this crowd was in comparison to the night before. Yeah, definitely. And I thought it was really a beat too. Your daughter can sometimes be a little more passive and a little more behind the beat, but this one I thought was really up front. And especially, you know, as it gets into the jam, even before the call and response part, I thought they really were in a good place in the jam. I thought that could have been extended even longer. 
Yeah, and it's all about that massive howl that Ed lets out, and he's doing a back and forth with the crowd for a little bit, like, you just hear that come, and the crowd is just captivated, and they all let loose after that. It was a pretty cool moment. You also gotta address that there is no even flow in this show. Hell, there's three ten songs. That's it. And that's pretty rare, as we all know. Yeah, the average no is porch, usually... no black, yeah. Yep, yep, just alive and once later. But it's not very common for that to happen. But good stuff happening on Daughter. And also, he gave it to the crowd for that course, and they absolutely nailed it. Really, really good stuff. The crowd was alive for this one. He gives him a little compliment dig at the same time. It was great singing for this town. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. wonder if that's a little hangover from last mm-hmm. night. We played this song a lot of times back in the day, and then we decided that we weren't going to play it. This is going to be very interesting, and this kind of surprised me all of what he says here. It wasn't that we decided. It was just that every time that we played it, the roof was caving in on my head, and someone was pouring cream soda on my head, and I'd start to black out. We did it at Soundcheck today, and it still happens for some reason. So if I happen to fall on the floor, somebody just pick up the mic and come finish the song. Without any knowledge of the set, what would you think he would be talking about? Oh, like Lucan or something. Yeah, like something that can give him a head rush. Yeah, habit or whipping or something, yeah. What surprised me is the tie-in to it is that he says we don't play it a whole lot anymore and that's kind of true weirdly for this era now here's some stats here's some numbers for you guys jeremy had gone for 22 shows without being played before this show that means you have to go back to the hartford show in 2008 as the last time they played it and there were 22 shows in between and that's the most of any time that it's missed. You'd have to go back to two instances in 2003 where the song was absent at 14 of the shows. After the 22, I think there was maybe one show at 10, but it wasn't really in double digits anymore. Like, this was continuous. You just don't think of this song, especially because 1995 would be the era where they would stop doing it because of the whole, we're just kind of tired of it, we want to give it kind of a makeover with no Jeremy and all that, but it's weird to hear him say that, yeah, we don't really do this one, and while at that moment it was kind of true, it overall is not. Yeah, it varies. Like, some years it looks like they play it 65, 70% of shows. You like 2016, 64%. I'm looking at live footsteps here. 2015, 72%. 2014, 65%. So that's pretty substantial. But then, like, 2013, only 38%. 2011, 56%. Still pretty good. 2010, only 32%. 2009, what we're talking about here, yes, yeah, 17% of the shows well. Jeremy was only played at. But then you look at last year... 48%. So about half. Now it's it's kind of settled into that spot where you're going to get it about every other night. Yeah. Weird that 
it's kind of true, even though it's kind of not, that it sometimes does get underrepresented. But this is the longest time that they have ever gone without playing it. So interesting stuff. Following that was Unthought Known. Weirdly, the intro didn't feel like it started off very strong. It just didn't sound together. It kind of had to make its way there, but like little pieces were off. And you got to remember these songs are being played in their infancy. Unthought known. They yeah. didn't really know what they had with it yet. So yeah, only the yeah. seventh performance. I'll give them a break on that. Yeah, sure. It's just kind of interesting because we know it to be a crowd pleaser now where they have it down pretty tight, where you go from 2013 onwards, there ain't a bad performance of it. So it's a little interesting to hear here where they're not quite on the same page, but to spin it more positively, it wasn't a bad version at all. You got to hear a lot of good piano parts from Boom. And while I think that's the norm, it sounds really good in the mix here. Yeah, I didn't write down anything from Boom on this, but that's a good call. Like, he does add a lot to these songs we don't usually think of on Backspace, or that's not one they think of like, oh, that's a Boom record. Like, it doesn't seem like that, but he does have some good parts on this. All right, get into Ed talking real quick. There's only one person in this room that I know came from a small town called Big Sandy, so we're going to dedicate this one to him tonight. Small town up until the end, was going swimmingly, was going fine, until something happened. For some reason, Cameron went into a completely different song for a second or two it wasn't even keeping the beat from what the actual song was it sounded completely like i don't know what he was trying to go for there but he quickly recognizes his error and almost feels like he faded himself out and it in a weird way was a little bit artistic in the way that it all happened but it was just weird it was just weird hearing that continue yeah, do you think he was trying to play it a different way to kind of give it a, like he can do that? We've we've seen that on songs where he can switch up a rhythm and it'll kind of change how the song sounds. Do you think it was just that, or do you think it was just an honest mistake? I don't think Cameron makes a lot of honest mistakes, so I'm gonna lean more towards he was trying something different stylistically, and maybe they had done it on another night on this tour mm-hmm. and it worked. I don't know, I would listen to every single 2009 show yet, but it would have been real interesting if it kind of had more of a progressive beat to finish off on than its normal kind of dramatic finish to it. But who knows? It could be a thing that they'd done before. It could be a thing for the future. That's why we got to continue covering all these shows because just listen to more and we get more answers. That's it. All right, they're going to try something here. I don't know why all of a sudden we're a bit nervous. I think what might happen here is if you've ever heard the saying, a drunk man's version of it, this song is so good that even a drunk man's version is going to be pretty fucking great. Before I lose all your confidence, you guys have been so much better than last night. We pay attention to these things. And I'll be honest, there are people that we grew up listening to that are in this crowd tonight, and you're making us look real good in front of our heroes. We appreciate that. 
And then he mentions John Doe, Mike Watt, Stuart Copeland, and says that's a pretty good man right there. Oh, anything with Mike Watt's going to be good. Yeah, he would make it work. He would find a way. Stuart Copeland is kind of, he's done weird stuff before too, so I can, I can, yeah. I can see it happen. Yeah. So a couple weeks ago, we actually talked about the reemergence of German to Tears after just kind of playing it in a preset in 1992. And it kind of seems like this song has more surprise appearances than we think, because while that show was like 450 some odd shows in between where they played it, this version is 158 shows in between times that they played it. And the last time they had played it was Thunder Bay in 2005. And that's kind of the running theme for it. It just pops up randomly over the years. This would be play number 11 out of 13. So the next two times it comes back, it comes back basically the same kind of capacity. Like, oh, big surprise. And doing that, while this isn't a staple Pearl Jam cover at all, kind of just makes you forget about the song a little bit. Yeah, I don't really know what to do with this. I agree with Ed that it's a fine song. It's a police deep cut, I guess. It's not one of their huge hits that everybody knows. But it's such a weird song, and they don't really, like, do anything special with it. Like, some of the covers that have stuck around, like your Crazy Marys and even your Last Kiss and Baba and things like that. It's just weird. And I think, you know, you mentioned Stuart Copeland being there. I mean, it just felt like this is just, hey, hey, this is your song. Hey, we know your song. Like, it, it felt uninspired is probably too mean, but it's just kind of like, eh, I don't really know what this is doing here. I thought the performance was fine. I thought it was pretty good. I think the ending really got to a nice spot and they really kind of connected. And they thought before the performance that it was going to end up like shit, but... I think it was a really good performance. I will bring this back a little bit later because there is something within this performance that does get brought back. So hang on to that thought. All right. While we're finishing off the set, we got The Fixer, which is going to be the penultimate song, and then Rear Mirror, which is going to be the song. A little bit about The Fixer. It feels like every time we've covered this in the last few times that we have, it's been a penultimate main set song. I thought that seemed kind of weird, but it has been played more times in the one to five spots with 28 and from 16 to 20. I know this song is the 15th song of the night, and I'm going to give it the liberty of being 16 to 20 because it's a shorter main set, but it's been played 24 times there. And I get that back then it makes sense to do the fixer as the penultimate, but looking back in hindsight, it's a totally different way of thinking. And you're almost like, why would they do that? Because of what you know of performances of the song and what you're in, because it's different. I was a fan of the fixer back then and it just kind of wore off on me a little bit. This song never grabbed me. And I think there was a reason. I think it showed up a bunch of times on the set list last year and ended up getting cut every single time. And yeah, I think this is, they thought it was going to be more of a thing than it ended up being. And it just never grabbed people, I think, like they hoped it would. This is weird. I think it, at one point, even he's yelling, like, we ready? We ready? Like, no. It's just like, eh, it just doesn't do anything for me. Watch out. There are fixer people out there oh, that yep. are very, very, very hardcore, the fixer. Hey, if that's your thing. More power to you. That's right. 
That's right. But yeah, it just doesn't feel like the fixer should be going into rearview mirror. It's never been a, it's never had a big moment live. Like I can't think of a great live performance. I, I, I just think can't think of a South American versions of this, to be yeah, honest with you. Yeah. Just, and then nothing comes to mind is it's never had a big moment. He's still been played less than a hundred times. The crowd gets into the, yeah, yeah, yeah. They get into that a little bit, but I know, I know where you're coming from. It does fall a little flat. It says that song was about fixing things. And this one kind of is too. You mentioned it before. This is what we kind of knew of this show going into this, that this version of River Mirror was immortalized on the PJ-20 soundtrack. If you remember earlier last year, we had, and we talk about Deprogrammed all the time, and what we've done within our podcast to kind of merge with Deprogrammed, and one of the things that we did last year was we did a dissection of all of the live albums. And it included Let's Play 2, and it included the PJ-20 soundtrack, it included Live on 10 Legs and Live on 2 Legs, also Touring Band 2000. And this version of Rearview Mirror ended up in the top 10 of that because it was absolutely undeniably maybe the best performance of all of the performances that we heard on all of the compilations. It has everything that you expect from a version of Rearview Mirror. It has a ripping drive, very atmospheric sounding guitars, a very hard biting bass, Cameron doesn't let up the whole entire way. It takes you on a very electric and almost emotional roller coaster. It's like a very sweat-inducing song when you're in that crowd. You just don't want to stop. Like they created that environment to just pulverize you with the song. And it fucks you up. It's one of the best. Yeah, I love what Jeff is doing here. A lot of really cool bass runs and kind of little melodic fills and things that he's doing really stands out as being really excellent. And yeah, I think everyone gets a moment on it. It feels like that's why they chose this version. It feels like everyone gets highlighted on it. Everyone kind of gets a spotlight to have a moment on it. Yeah, I mean, Matt is stellar. Like you mentioned, everyone feels like they're just pushing and building towards that surge in the middle that leads to a really good ending. Yeah, this is an outstanding performance. I mean, this performance elevates this show from here on out. It's going to be very, very good. Yep, it's a tale of two shows from here. And you're right, this ending is just incredible. Just listen.
we're at the Encore here. Let's pause for station identification and talk a little bit about Patreon for a second or two. And then we got a couple other things to mention as well. So I'm going to throw this out there. We had an opportunity on Patreon to try something new. They have introduced free trials into Patreon. So what I did was I attached a free trial onto the bonus leg tier. So anybody that wants to just take in however many episodes is, it's a seven-day free trial. They want to take in evolution episodes, all the things that you want to catch up on, see how it is on the platform, see what kind of stuff that you're getting, which there's thousands of things, it seems then there is a trial available for you to kind of go through and listen to everything. And if you like it, you can continue on. If it's something that you just want to get some episodes out of the way, that's fine. Maybe we'll have you back later. But it's a good way of introducing people that weren't involved with Patreon to at least get a taste of what we're doing. And... And from that standpoint, of course, we're always looking for more people and we hope that what we're doing entices you enough to to stick around, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. I think it's a good way to just get you in the door, get you an introduction, and if it's not for you, then that's totally okay. It was just a good opportunity to get more listeners in, and I know a lot of people are always worried about, okay, I don't know if I have the funding for this month and and whatnot. Totally understand you got a lot of tickets and hotels and, and flights to pay for right now. Totally get it. But it's there for you for a seven-day trial. What you have to do to unlock it is you got to go to patreon.com slash live on four legs. And usually I'll give the other links here as well. But you have to specifically go to that link and then click on the bonus leg tier, and there will be an option for you to select the seven-day trial. They'll ask for your credit card, but if you want to cancel your credit card before the seven days are up, then they give you the option to do that. So that is all available to you. If you just want to join, if you're like, you know what, I'm going to like the content anyway and just want to join, the same way. Go to any of the tiers. And it's the bonus leg tier that the free trial is on. So even if you forget to get rid of your card, it's only charging you a dollar a month. So it's really not a huge thing. So if that entices you, do everything I just said and you'll be in good hands. All right. I think that was essentially what I had to say for Patreon. No extra sell for that this week. We did an episode and an interview last week with a bluegrass cover band, John Talk a little bit about that. What did you think of that? It was interesting. It's like not something that you would normally associate with Pearl Jam, but you could tell like they did a bluegrass cover album of Pearl Jam. You could tell they were kind of impressed with the band, and that's what I really took from it, is like you could tell they appreciated the music and coming at it from a different perspective. It's a really interesting listen. I really enjoyed talking to them. They were really nice people, and they are bluegrass people through and through. And when you listen, it's sort of the story of how it all kind of developed for them, how listening to these songs gave them the idea of, okay, well, we can do this and translate this in that way and kind of create their own thing with it. Because they even said they didn't want to listen to the songs that much because they didn't want to tailor what they were doing as being the same as Pearl Jam. 
So, yeah, it's a really interesting listen. Now, it's on the main platform, and it's also on Patreon. The main platform is just going to be the straight-up interview, and that's it. On Patreon, there's going to be a few more bells and whistles that really make the episode pop that we couldn't really put on the main platform. Take that for what you will, but if there's a hint in there, then figure that out. But it is available on both and worth it for you guys to check out. Just want to throw that in, in all these conversations here. Two more things to kind of mention Mansfield. We are still taking stories from Mansfield. All you got to do is head to live on four legs.com and on our front slider. If you click a couple over, there will be the sign up form for Mansfield. You just type in your story there. It gets sent to us. And then when we do the trilogy, in late june early july we will share your story on the podcast so really appreciate if people would do that and hope to get a lot of good responses we got some good responses so far so hopefully we can get some more from you guys and as far as t-shirts go i know we mentioned it before but yeah the t-shirt is going to be really cool and it will be for sale through our website. And I hope that you guys, because we're going to be doing a lot of events and a lot of camaraderie things around the shows that are happening in September and would love to see people and meet people wearing the shirt. So more details on how it's going to be for sale will come very soon. But if you are on the socials, you should probably have seen the graphic go out by now. So, yeah, that's where we stand with all that. All right, let's go back to The Rock. Ed says, thank you very much. You were a bit quiet. Sounds like you knew that we were coming back out. Either that or we were going to have some lovely string music playing for you as you left. Ladies and gentlemen, meet these ladies and gentlemen. And he introduces the string section and the people that are there playing violin and cello and whatnot. We thought in such a nice-sounding arena that you should hear some music with actual class and distinction. Just breathe in the Ender package together here, and then we'll get something a little kooky afterwards. So, we're listening. We're listening. We're listening. It's not there, but there's an excuse for it, because there is a string section. Would have loved to hear the bass anyway, but I think that the string section kind of made it sound a little bit more full and took more of an emotional route to it and didn't have that bounciness. So I, I, I get why they didn't use Jeff on this. I still would have liked to hear it though. Like you said, with the string section in the bass, I think it would have sounded really good. And this is like, it's a nice version as well. You know, the string players do a very nice job, but it still is. It's always going to be missing something when Jeff's not there. Yeah, it is. And I think the other times that they've done this, it's all been Ed solo and you yeah. know either Boom or Mike on the side or something like that. But yeah, I'm starting to realize the Jeff versions are few and far between. Yeah, we need to keep account of that. We need to go through every version of this and say, this is a Jeff version, this is a Jeff version. So we know going into when we cover a show with Just Breathe, how we're going to be feeling about it. So if that helps, then it helps. Here's a thought that I had when listening to both these songs back to back, they're both very early on in being played. You kind of get that. And as we talked about before, they're all early on in being played and just breathe to me, the way that Ed was playing it, it didn't sound as rich as the end did. And I think maybe it's because you can do it a little better with the end 
because the end is a little bit more simpler finger picking wise. I think that when you get to just breathe and the juxtaposition between the string section and what Ed is doing, it kind of gets some notes that are kind of misplucked and things like that. And it doesn't sound as pretty as what the section's doing. So I thought that the end was a little bit better sounding from Ed's end. It just kind of had more of that richness to it. Actually, I think I'm with you. I think I liked the end more here than just breathe. And I think the problem I have with the end is that Ed sometimes gets too overwrought and too theatrical with it. Like, I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he really plays up that vocal and ends up like, I don't like that as much as just play it straight and like give it the emotion that his voice normally has. Like he doesn't have to do that to have the performance have some weight behind it and have it be emotional. He can just use his normal voice, which is very, very good. I thought he did a pretty good job of that here. All right. He thanks everyone, but he says, we're not through with you yet. I know, I know that each and every one of you are complete virtuosos. So I'm going to play something and I'm going to see if you can play along with it. I'm not... It's, it's not to put you on the spot, it's just that I, I couldn't find you before the gig to, to tell you. So it, it's, it's fairly up-tempo. And uh, I just thought it would be a good way to get out of that last fucking depressing song. Um... And I think it's the type of song that whatever you play on top of it, it's going to be okay. And then the next gig, we'll actually practice it and we'll, we'll do something nice with it. But tonight, let's just fuck it up. So I, I, I'm told, even though I wrote it, I'm told it's an E minor, stay away from the third. I don't know what that means. But it's the only advice I can give you. Okay, ready? Oh, no, no, no. E minor, sorry. If you remember back to a very old episode back in I don't know, 2019, I believe when we did the Madison Square Garden series very early on in our podcasting life, we did the first night of MSG, not Slow Lucan Night, but we did this version that's essentially the same as what you hear here, except a little bit more, well, a lot more practice. And I called that Lucan 1.5, Lucan 1.5. And, and I think that you could throw this version in with that. It's, a, it's the same thing. What I'll say about the MSG version 
you could tell that they kind of practiced something because it did feel like the string section was all kind of synced together. It sounded like a very dramatic, almost like a march or a stomp to it. It was like, boom, 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 boom. And it sounded cool. It kind of sounded a little haunting in a way. And then here, what are you going to expect? He basically tells the guy, sit down and play a song that I'm going to play in a minute flat and try to keep up. You hear, like, after the first or second riff there, one of the violins is just like, oh, yeah, I got this. I got this. No problem. I figured it out. And basically, they're matching what Ed is doing. I thought that that was pretty incredible. Yes, yeah, I'll go a step further. I think this is a singular performance. I I think that MSG version is way more rehearsed with the strings and everything. This definitely feels like an improv. They did not practice this. Like I said, they're just trying to figure it out on the fly. And it's just chaos. And that's what it should be with Luke. And I think this is fantastic. I don't think there's another performance like this. But the crowd goes apeshit for this. They go apeshit as they should. Yeah, you're getting something you never heard before. But the crazy thing is, you know, along with the stigma that goes along with these shows is that nobody really remembers them. You never hear anybody bring up this version of Lucan at all. And maybe it's because 2010 happened so quickly after this that Slow Lucan just demolished whatever this version was because A, it's at Madison Square Garden, it's got... A lot of people there. It's also made for the string section instead of the string section trying to follow up and be what the actual song is. And part of a legendary show overall, too. Yes, of course. Absolutely, of course. But it's disappointing that some of these performances come from less remembered shows and then much later they're sort of put in a bigger spotlight. And I wonder, yeah, it could be the band also saying too, like, Hey, this worked here, but it doesn't feel like people are touting it as a highlight. So let's find a place to make it a highlight. I wonder if there's a little bit of that too. Maybe. All right. I think we can move on. Speaking of virtuosos, Ed's going to welcome in Mr. Ben Harper And he introduces him once and then says it again a little bit louder. Doesn't get the crowd response he was hoping for the first time. Yeah. And this to me is like L.A. in a nutshell. He says, I know some of you missed his set tonight. And of course, the L.A. trademark is you never arrive for anything early or on time. You're very fashionably late and you blame it on traffic all the time. You're probably at home trying to figure out what shirt to wear and what shirt to iron because that's kind of just what happens uh, look red mosquito they are going to do this this entire year it's going to be a major highlight this is the fourth time that they have done this with ben harper in 2009 he's touring with them all over the place so it's going to be a big staple and boy it's one of the best things to come out of this year yeah, he absolutely can shred on that thing. And I remember seeing the Austin City Limits performance of it and getting the visual of him playing. And he's a very animated with his face and everything contorted and everything while he's playing, like really getting into it and just thinking like, oh yeah, this is going to be something really special. And yeah, I agree. I, I love these versions of it. I think it really adds something cool to the song. And I wish that, you know, wish he would come back more. You know, we got Danny Clinch like eight times in a row on it. Like, well, what's Ben Harper doing that he can't come back and guest a couple of times on this? Oh, lest we forget, Javier wants to say something about Red Mosquito because he absolutely should. Here he is. 
don't know if you guys knew, but Ben Harper is a magnificent lab guitar steel player. And this is what we can hear in this version of Red Mosquito. The main difference in between a lap steel and an electric guitar is when you play the strings over an inlaid fret, that's how you create the sound and you can create voicings and you can create different notes across the guitar neck within an electric guitar. In the case of a lap steel, this is something that it can be created by simply the percussion of the string and the vibration over a brush metal part that it goes over the string and you can go back and forth creating that. I always call it kind of like wobbly sound that the lap seal can create. Great tone, I think it pushes the song to a different level. It takes the song to a path that maybe we're not very used to it in a regular basis. He doesn't run anything with his lap steel. He will usually have just his own amp, no pedals in the front. Maybe sometimes he will have a fuzz pedal or like a little harder overdrive just to make the tone a little bit more intense. But basically in a lap steel, the intensity you can get comes from how much percussive is gonna be your right hand and how much you're gonna dig into that string while you're playing that. Amazing version, I think it sounds like the Wild West. Whenever they get Ben invited to play with him, it makes it a little bit more experimental and I think opens up the room for more stuff to do for the other players like Jeff Stone, Matt, Mike. They can kinda go a little further and think outside of the box. At least that's my take every single time that I hear Ben Harper coming in and play a song with them. All right, we'll see the guy back for the national anthem at the end. And he can do it all, guys. He's the guru. Before Better Man, Ben is leaving the stage, and they gotta pack up the steel guitar and everything. And Ed asked the band, hey, can you guys do a little jazz odyssey while the crew is breaking down? It's been a long time since we had some experimental jazz. So he says it was one that they worked on years ago, but it never made it onto a record. And here they are, kind of booting, scatting away, and kind of doing all... It's the tap thing, right? They're doing the spinal tap thing. They did it the next two nights, too, a week later. When you think of this, for for me, I think of 2003. Like the Buffalo show. That's free jazz. That's different. It doesn't sound different, at least to my recollection. It sounds exactly the same. It's a little different. John, our jazz expert for the evening. Jazz Odyssey is a little more like old school jazz sound to it. Free jazz is more like your scronky kind of like fucking around. This is already way too long that we've talked about this. <laughs> but I will say is that when I mentioned Driven to Tears and it being brought back up later, here it is. Mike does do a little bit of that like beep boo boo beep boo 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 kind of stuff in Driven to Tears. So that's it. Better Man is going to close you out, and it's going to be a great crowd moment here, of course. Everybody's singing along all the way through, and Ed takes a second to admire it all and says, yeah, that's pretty great. And there's one moment. This only happens once. It happens like first or second chorus. You hear some backing vocals just for one little bit. They don't do it again. I believe it's Matt, but oh my goodness the little taste that he leaves us. How is that not done more? Yeah, Matt's underrated on the vocals. He's got the mic right there. Yeah, we've talked about it a couple times. There was one a few weeks ago where we could really hear his backup vocal very loud and clear and it was very good. Yeah. 
I think Matt has a great voice. I think it's an underrated skill that they don't use enough. Yeah, I love this. I feel like they didn't use it a lot on the last tour. That yeah, yeah. if they yeah. needed a backup, they went to Josh. Because mm-hmm. Josh kind of has that real falsetto in his voice. So he can compliment Ed. But Matt does such a good job with doing that. Yeah, utilize him. Please, utilize him more. Especially in this song. It was a split second and that's it. That feels like a really bad tease. We don't need to tease. We don't need to be teased anymore. Just do it. Alright, that was a good performance and Ed lets out a big holler during the Don't Let Me Down. Very good one. Encore 2, we got about five or six more songs here. Ed comes out and says, We got a couple more. I promise we won't keep you, but promises are made to be broken. They get into Gonna See My Friend to open this. We covered this a few months ago when we did the Philadelphia show from 2016. And I think a lot of the observations that we had were that the three guitar attack like didn't necessarily bite, didn't necessarily feel strong. Ed's voice was a little bit rough, like he couldn't hit those high marks on it. And this is a different scenario here. If they were ever to do the song again, as about 12 people that wrote into us wanted it to happen again, it should be done like this. However, I don't know if they can do it like this. This was really, really good. It was tight. The band had a lot of energy. They ran through the song. It felt like they had something good going on. And I don't think they have this version in them anymore. But... To a lot of people, that doesn't matter because just hearing the song is enough. I get that. Totally on board with that. But I really like this version. only the third of her performance i mean yeah you're getting a pretty straight version you know pretty close to the one that's on the record yeah like i said high energy everyone felt like they were going for it sometimes they'll put a faster one at the beginning of encore 2 to kind of jump start to the ending we've seen like comatose and go and things like spin the black circle in this spot so it kind of serves that same purpose of kind of like kicking everyone back in the ass one more time before you get to the end yeah i thought it was fine yeah no not bad at all I believe in miracles going into once. Ed gives a dedication. This doesn't make any sense, guys. Ed gives a dedication to Johnny Guitar, Ramon. Yeah, I said it. And says it's close to his birthday. So they're playing a show. His birthday's on the 8th of October. They're playing a show on the 7th. Why not just wait until the 7th to give him a dedication, right? Doesn't that yeah, make more sense? Knows. Yeah, what? Yeah, who knows? Ed thinks in very weird ways. There was somebody that got in touch with us this week, and he was like, hey, Ed said happy birthday to Walter Payton at the Nashville show last year, but it wasn't his birthday. And I went back and looked and like, you're right, it wasn't his birthday. I have no yeah. idea where he was coming from. So, yeah, it's the wine. Who knows? Anyway, very driving version of Miracles. We get once here, and Ed kind of makes a dad joke. 
We've played this once. And this is actually downtuned, which feels, especially for the time, feels like they weren't consistently downtuning older songs just yet. And it's a little irregular for once. I wonder, you, you mentioned that Ed's voice seemed like it was shot. Was that a cognizant decision backstage that maybe they all said like, hey, we want Alive to be the song out of this, so let's tune down once so we can get there? Yeah. I think that, uh, that might have been the case? That's what I would guess, yeah. It means he doesn't have to push his voice as hard on him. Yeah, and Gonna See My Friend, I believe, is drop-tuned, so they can just dig back to what they were using with that song. So that kind of an easy switch, I suppose. But it's weird to hear that. It does feel a little watered down. It's just weird to hear once not have that really high-pitched strumming in the intro. Yeah, and the down-tuning thing, like, people get into that nowadays. It's like a hot-button thing where people are very much like, oh, down-tune, 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 but doesn't bother me as long as it's a good performance like it can still be fine but this one yeah it felt like something was off a little bit i think once would pick up it had a little more of a rebirth in like 2011 2013 2016 and become a little bit more of the anthem that it once was yeah i can see that i agree with you on that standpoint like things can be down tune and that's fine but just like make it feel like the song and i don't think this felt like once so <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'm with you on that. All right. Alive, Ledbetter. Alive, just like Jason said, this was one of his favorite moments of this night. This felt like a monster anthem. It really did. Crowd up for it. It builds to that big moment. And you know, it was so weird. Like before doing the, yeah, that, that whole part before getting into that, there was something going on with Matt's bass drum and just sort of the way that he was attacking it. And I felt it in my ear and my headphone, and it felt like it was shaking. And I don't get to hear that that often, if at all. Yeah, it comes off as really, really big and really, really epic. It, it felt like, again, going back to the beginning where Interstellar Overdrive and the Corduroy felt really playful and loose and open. It felt like they got back to that feeling at the end here. Yeah, crowd was really, really hot for it. You know, like Jason said, it sounded as though they didn't want to let it go. They would have let it go on for a couple more minutes, for more hours, and just kind of let it ride the wave up until they were kicked off the stage. But it did feel like a real big burst from the seams moment and a massive way to say goodbye. Ed does address before going into Ledbetter, says, in all honesty, it was so much better tonight. I heard it was okay last night, but there's an energy thing that happens and we appreciate what you gave us. You made it so that when we go down to Austin, that we can actually be excited about going back. That's, he must have really hated that show. 
that's yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. all I got on that. We'll have to do that one next when we get to these four. Well, that one will be next. Oh, I want, I want, I want to do the Cantrell. I want to do Cornell. Oh, yeah, we got to save that one. You can't do that one and then go to the bad one. We got to build up to it. Fair. We should have started with that one then. Kind of made it yeah. a series, but oh, a little too late. If anybody wants to request them, we'll put it on the queue. So Ledbetter, going to be your ending moment. National Anthem sounds unbelievable. Mike is just pulling out every trick, screeching and scorching, just incredibly loud. Obviously, he's stealing everything from what Hendrix did. Anytime he does that, that is Hendrix's version. But there was something about this one. I usually don't think about the anthem tag that much when it comes up. I'm just kind of like, okay, well, yeah, it's the anthem. And, you know, we've heard it a little bit and it doesn't really do much for me, but I really was impressed by this. Yeah, it just felt like channeling Hendrix in all the all the right ways, like you mentioned. I mean, we saw it. I think this was at the end of the Spectrum too, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of a tie in there around the same kind of time. So, yeah, a lot of energy behind it. I mean, anytime you let Mike loose by himself, he's going to put on a show. Yep, and it's a great way to end it. Great way to say goodbye to that crowd that helped you out and basically made you forget about the first night that didn't help you out at all. So that's where we are. And we won't stop with the national anthem. We'll get back to that in a minute or two. All right. We got to pick some top three moments. Let's take a live as number three, just a powerful version that felt like it was really transcendent. So that was excellent. Number two, I'm going to say red mosquito. And we say for number one is rear mirror. I, that's the thing about this show. It has mm. one of the best performances of any song. It has to be number one there. Well, I'm a little surprised you didn't put Red Mosquito number one. I'm going to say Rearview Mirror number three, Luke in number two, and Red Mosquito number one. Well, here's the thing about me not putting Red Mosquito number one. There's a ton of versions of this, like about 15. So they've done it, and I don't want to use that as downplaying it. I just am so impressed by this Rearview Mirror that it would have taken a lot to bump it off this list. That makes sense to you. All right. All right. Rating this. This is a fine show. I think outside of a couple of really good performances, I don't think it has a whole lot to go back to. The main set kind of had little bits and pieces, but like nothing really that knocked your socks off just performances that and I, I mentioned earlier in the episode that we're at the bar at the median of what you expect from Pearl Jam, which is totally fine. It makes for good shows. But it's weird because River Mirror I, I thought was an all world performance. Red Mosquito obviously all world. You can even count alive and consider that into that. But even on top of that, like the show was just okay. It was fine. I don't think it reaches an eight for me. I'm going to say 7.5 on this one. Good crowd. And if I was there, then yeah, maybe it reaches a little bit above, but I'm at, I'm at a 7.5. haven't given it a 7.5 in a long time. So yeah, I think I'm right there with you. I mean, this is really a Jekyll and Hyde kind of show. Like the main set, I think is unremarkable as a harsh word, but 
it kind of is there's not really anything to latch on to as like a great moment but then at review mirror it kicks up and from then on you're like wow like this is great so i I think if i average those two then i get around a seven and a half so i think i'm right there with you seven and a half is fine and it's all about what jason had to say too so take jason's word for it not ours I don't know why he listened to all that time just to listen to what Jason had to say, but and he would have given it a three. <laughs> we're not we're not going back to the Matt years, are we? <laughs> Giving shit threes. Just kidding. yikes. All right, well, let's go back into what we're gonna do next week, and what we're gonna do again is we're gonna start another month of very heavy coverage on two thousand and three. Obviously, it all kind of culminates at the Mansfield Trilogy. That's going to be the big ones, and it's going to be three different episodes all in a row, so you're going to be really excited for that. But we got to get you a couple of teaser episodes and get you kind of into what they were doing for those shows with a couple of other shows that were on this leg, on the second leg of the North American side. So we're going to do, because they are playing, well, Fort Worth, We're going to be doing Dallas from 2003 to give you guys an episode that's from a local spot of where they're playing this year. So Dallas 2003 is going to be the show for next week. I believe that show opens with a live, if I'm not mistaken. So we get to talk about that for the first time. A live into Brain of Jay. Ooh, ooh, damn. Okay. Yeah, we got a lot to talk about. There's an arc there, too. So that'll be, yeah, it's it's a good set list. All right. That was our episode hopefully you guys enjoyed that if you did then please make sure that you are subscribed on the big platforms any platform that you get to listen to podcasts on just subscribe so you know that when our episodes come up you have the option to listen to it and get little pop-ups whatever have you and really the big ones spotify apple podcast they both have rating systems if you want to go in if you like what you hear Give us a five-star rating. It'll help a whole lot. On Apple, you can leave a comment. And what it does is it just lets the next person that is looking to listen to something, it gives them the confidence that, hey, if this guy liked it, if this guy liked it, 95 people seem to have voted. And that's where we are right now. 95 people on Apple have rated us, and we're at probably 93 five-star ratings. Then that gives them the inclination that, okay, This is a podcast that I should be listening to, and that's enough for them. And we can't do that. We can just talk about that, but you can actually be the ones to direct their attention to us. So we thank all the people that have already done it, and anybody that is willing to do so in the future, you guys rock as well. So that's all we got on this one. This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already, miss you always. So I hide my disappointment because for years I'd been hoping that this song would just come for me, but it didn't. Alas, that's the end of our episode. And stick around because we're not really done. We're going to head to Javier for the national anthem.
the end, we can hear what actually Jimi Hendrix used to do all the time. The national anthem combined with Yellow Lead Better. Not that Jimmy used to do Yellow Lead Better by any means, but this is something that Jimmy used to do. If you want to look for the greatest reference of all times related to this version of the national anthem, please YouTube the Woostock version that Jimmy does. My favorite thing about the expression of the song or like the character of this version, whoever plays that is how can you make it your own? And I think Mike does a really good job just integrating some of the licks that he always does or the use of the terminal arm on his strap just to make it a little bit more dramatic, adding delay to or pushing the guitar a little harder in front of the amps, just adding more overdrives and just adding more character to it. It's always a treat when you get one of those. I think it's this little time when he can say thank you to one of his greatest influences and it's always a little treat whenever you get it live somewhere, whenever you're following the band live. 